Thank you for joining us today. I want to welcome everyone to the second installment of STS's summer webinar series. This series will run every other week and feature presentations and panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant and important to CT surgeons and the world of CT surgery. STS would like to thank Medtronic for their generous support and sponsorship of this webinar and the STS summer webinar series. Today's topic is robotic cardiac surgery, how I learned it and how you can learn it. We ought to try and make this webinar as interactive as possible and hear from you, the audience. To that end, you can enter questions through the Q&A feature in Zoom. The moderators and panelists will try to respond to as many questions as possible. Please note, this webinar is being recorded and will be available tomorrow morning on the STS website, STS YouTube channel, and the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. At this time, I am pleased to welcome our moderators, Sloan Guy and Sam Balky. Thank you so much, Wes. Um, the goal of today's webinar is to really drill down on how some very accomplished uh, surgeons have uh, managed to become skilled robotic cardiac surgeons, and then to share some ideas among them on how you might do the same. And so we've assembled some, uh, a panel of really, uh, really good surgeons, some of whom learned robotics a long time ago, and some more recently, but all have a proven track record of starting uh, successful, uh, successful programs. What we'd like to do is, is learn about the lessons that they have uh, learned, some of the difficulties that they've faced, and then, um, and then share some question and answers with the audience. I'd like to thank Medtronic for sponsoring this, and I'd like to thank the uh, staff at the STS, uh, Wes and Michelle, uh, for setting this up. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to my partner, Sam Balky, to introduce our speakers today. Thank you very much, Sloan, and welcome to our uh, uh, guests on the webinar today, uh, and welcome to our uh, panelists. Uh, I would also like to thank the STS for uh, hosting this and for our sponsor, Medtronic. I'd like to introduce our panelists uh, very quickly, uh, each of whom will give a, uh, a quick uh, rundown and description of how they got into cardiac robotic surgery uh, and what their practices are like, uh, and then we can uh, try to have some uh, interactive questions and answers uh, and, and get to the topics that uh, you're most interested in hearing. Uh, our speakers today uh, have a varied uh, history of using the robot in their cardiac surgical procedures. Uh, Dr. Francis Sutter uh, from Lincolnow Medical Center in Wynwood, uh, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, uh, has uh, probably one of the largest uh, robotic coronary experiences and uh, has the largest series of hybrid coronary surgery probably in the world. Dr. Eugene Grassi at NYU Langone in New York, uh, was a uh, participant in some of the earliest uh, uh, mitral valve robotic procedures in North America. Uh, Dr. Vinay Badwar at uh, uh, you know, West Virginia University Heart and Vascular Institute in Morgantown uh, is very, very aggressive with robotic surgery and has a large experience in mitral and tricuspid and other intracardiac procedures. Uh, Dr. Arner Gerson from Yale uh, who has uh, been practicing robotic cardiac surgery for uh, close to two years and mostly uh, mitral and, and also coronary surgery as well. And then uh, finally, Dr. Robert Smith from Baylor Scott and White Health in Plano, Texas, who also uh, performs um, um, many uh, robotic mitral and coronary procedures. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to uh, Dr. Sutter. Uh, Fran, uh, uh, go ahead and give us a description of, of how you got into robotic cardiac surgery everyone's interest in using the robot to do cardiac surgery. Personally, I do robotic assisted mid -cabs. 
And uh, over the last 15 years, I've about done about 2,100 of these uh, operations. And it's a great operation. The patients love it. The cardiologists love it. And I love it. And um, anything that uh, I or this panel can do to entice you to do more would be great. The only problem is, is it takes some time, persistence, and commitment to do the operation. It's not, you know, see one, do one, teach one. So my journey began pretty long time ago. Um, I decided that doing on-pump, arrested heart, coronary bypass was not the way to go. And it just so happened to coincide when uh, Subaranian, Dr. Subaranian, started doing mid-cabs. And uh, so I was excited about mid-cabs, tried a few, but couldn't sell a mid-cab to the cardiologist because the patients hurt too much. And then op-cabs came out. And as a matter of fact, Medtronic came out with this, this uh, gadget that the, the first coronary stabilizer was two huge arms with pods on each, that you'd put on each side of the artery to hold the artery still. Of course, you didn't have anything to move the heart, but it was really primitive. And then finally, in the early 2000s, we had a gadget that could move the heart and we could also stabilize the coronary artery. And I'm a big believer in beating heart surgery, which is very important when you're gonna do robotic assisted mid-caps because even though the easiest artery to do is uh, lima to the LAD because it's stable, you don't have to move much, it really makes a difference if you have beating heart experience. So my journey, I already had a head start doing mid-caps and head start doing uh, beating heart surgery but then when I got the robot, I said, this robot, this is the greatest thing in the world, but you had to learn. So in order to learn, I really think the key to learning is to do it incrementally. And fortunately, once again, I had experience doing mid-cabs, I had experience doing op-cabs, and the way that I really learned is I talked to patients about my regular cabbage patients, and I said, there's two ways to take down a mammary. And I told the patient, I said, I could put three holes in your chest uh, and take down with the robot, but you know, I'm still gonna do a sternotomy. And you know, when we do the, take the mammary down through a sternotomy, you have to put the rule track in and pull back the chest wall. And uh, actually to tell you the truth, not one patient said, nah, I don't like that. I don't want to have the extra holes. And I also have to say that over my 15 years, probably 30 patients that I had to do a sternotomy that I had already put the holes in the patient or even a thoracotomy, they didn't even know the difference. It was all about the sternotomy. So I learned on a, probably 30 patients incrementally, and it made a huge difference. And not only me, but my team. Everything that you learn to do, you need to do with a bedside team that they're going to be your only team helping you. So um, we did it. I was using the standard robot, which was well before the S, the SI, the X, and the XI. Uh, it was very primitive. Um, but we moved forward. And I think the key thing 
is to learn incrementally. I think the key thing is, is you can't expect to do a mid cab if you're not a beating heart surgeon. If you're dedicated to on pump, what I suggest is to do all your anastomosis, take the clamp off, let the heart beat, and either do it with a full heart or an empty heart, just so you get some experience with a beating heart. Uh, and of course, you have to use a flow probe or do an arteriogram after you when you're learning. But right now, you have the opportunity to do dry runs, just bringing the robot in, where your ports are going to go. You have the opportunity to go to intuitive to learn a little bit. There's plenty of videos online, and there are a number of surgeons that would bend over backwards to help you learn. And I think that the key thing, one of the things that I did, one of the additional things, is I went around to visit other surgeons that did it. And it really made a huge difference. There wasn't one time that I visited another surgeon that I didn't learn something. And so when you're starting, the, the key is to have some sort of experienced surgeon helping you along the way. And of course, the STS is very helpful. And uh, once again, I think it's a great operation and will support anybody that asks how to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Fran. Um, you, you've had an amazing journey and do you know, really excellent uh, work. Um, and you know, having practiced in Philadelphia a number of years, I know the cardiologists in the community, they're very demanding, uh, really look up to you and the results that you get. And quite frankly, I've watched Fran operate and the size of his so-called thoracotomy is, is extremely small. Um, Fran, if you could summarize it in three steps, um, how you would recommend somebody start out in robotics? Just three simple steps. Well, the first step is to be determined to do the operation. The second step is to have a team. And the third step is just to, to do it, but go slow, incremental, small steps. So that, you know, whether you're a professional football player, basketball player, hockey player, the more relaxed you are in the operating room, the better operation you do. So if you have all the parts of the operation down before you start to do the operation, you'll do great. And I have to say that if you start to do the operation, you screw up, the, the cardiologists aren't going to be very supportive. So there, there's no room for, for missing a step. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. So next we'll move on to Gene Grassi uh, from NYU. Uh, Gene and um, one of his partners there, Dr. Colvin, performed the first robotic mitral in the United States. Uh, he and Didier LeMay uh, worked together at NYU and really do an amazing operation. I visited them one time and I think there's about three or four things that I do on every case as a result of that visit. Very, very practical uh, lessons learned. Uh, Gene, it's well known that you guys did a really good job standing up your program, and maybe you could share with us uh, how that went for you. Well, I think it begins with being very fortunate. Uh, back in the early 90s, I was doing a lot of the original Harport work because my colleague Greg Ribikoff had was out at Stanford. It was Stanford Surgical Te Technologies back then, and we were doing some of the original work. And so by the time we began playing with the, with the robots, 
we had already had about 1,200 uh, mini Thor economy mitrals under our belt. So we had a fair amount of right chest exposure uh, for the mitral valve. And then I guess it was in the summer of 1999, uh, through the end of that year, I was spending a lot of time in uh, Goleta, in just above Santa Barbara, where computer motion was. And with retrospect, it looks like I put my, my money on the wrong horse. Uh, but we did a lot of lab work with the uh, Zeus robot at the time, and then we used the Zeus robot in a series of about a, a dozen patients for the FDA, initially uh, exclusively for mitral valve surgery. And for ourselves, the limitation in terms of the instrumentation probably is what disillusioned us. And we walked back from it and we just continued with right mini thoracotomy. And then when DDA joined our faculty, oh, about 11 or 12 years ago, we realized we had a real opportunity. Uh, our infrastructure had, uh, had uh, acquired several systems for us and um, to use so we had access. And we realized with two people who had the training, we could develop a really, really powerful team. Uh, that having been said, uh, we, did, we didn't just go right at it. We were extremely, extremely careful. And I think it's just a, a reiterating what Fran had said, you, you have to have this down pat. And so what did we do? For, we took three months, basically. First thing we did, we wa watched and hung out with Doug, Doug Murphy. Doug's my hero, and it turns out I'm a little bit of a hero to him for the, for the balloon work. And so just went through everything that he did, the, his choreography, and then basically said, we're just gonna mit, we're just gonna mime this for the first 25, 30 operations. Do nothing different other than what Doug was doing. Um, to make it succeed, we got the commitment of having the same team every for every case. One of three anesthesiologists, the same team of nurses, and the same handful of perfusionists who were with us to remove as many variables out of the equation as possible. And as I said, we, we said we weren't going to make any changes in the first 25 to 30 patients in how we did it. And, and as a result of that, yes, things have changed along and we're just around a thousand now in terms of mitrals. Uh, but uh, the choreography is still the same. And uh, every stitch, everything, it's a sequence. It's like doing a dance. And when you're not doing the dance, as Fran says, if you begin to trip over your feet, man, that's the beginning of an ugly day. But if you stay on track, you know what you're doing. This is how we take the residents through the cases doing it. You know, it's, it's the exact same way. So I think to myself, that's, that's the way of success here. You're going to need to have right chest experience to feel comfortable with the lay of the land, because if things go bad, that's going to be your backup. And I think Looking at it, that's one of the beauties about watching Doug is the airplane pilot. You know, and what, what, what are you going to do if, if you lose oil pressure in one of your engines? What's the checklist to go through to, to, to debug it, to restart the engine? And you watch Doug, he has everything laid out. You know, any problem that he can think of, he's anticipated and has a, a, an anticipo anticipatory response to it. The same thing with this. You, you, there's nothing new under the sun. Anything that you're going to see, you have somebody else will have seen before. You just want to have it thought out and, you know, execute the right way of, of handling it because you know that's what's going to succeed. And I think that's really, that's really it. And we, you know, we've made a real point, DDA and myself, and I've been very 
fortunate to have a great partner. Uh, it makes it effortless, you know, to do two a day like this. It's nothing. And, um, and we're committed to sharing this with people and, and helping people see what we do and make it safe. The last thing in the world you want is somebody to do an unsafe operation. So you want people to be prepared, and that's how we train our residents. Thanks, Gene. That's uh, very um, uh, informative and educational. I think the model that you and Didier have at NYU is, is one that uh, should be emulated by uh, all of us that, uh, that do uh, uh, robotic uh, surgery. Um, I had a question for you, and then there's a question from the audience. My question is, uh, you've made the, the model where there are two surgeons on every case, a surgeon at the console and a surgeon uh, at the table, uh, extremely successful. Do you think that is the only way to do it, or should that be the only way to do it? What's your thoughts on that? I think for simple cases, you can, you can go to other models. But if you're going to be doing complex stuff like repairing the back of a ventricle and taking out MAC and patching the LV, you want two people there. And I think, I think, and this may be difficult for people in the audience to understand, that the console is very seductive, okay? Particularly when people are beginning. It's very, very seductive. People lose track of time, wherewithal, um, just because they're so focused on setting themselves up to have the next stitch angle approach be perfect. There's so much focus in on that. And, you know, as cardiac surgeons, we're masters of our environment. And so I'm very fond of saying that I'm the dean of discipline in our room. You know, my colleagues immersed in the, in the console and I'm, you know, keeping an eye on everybody, keeping everybody in a line, you know, and, and bringing the operation forward. So I think there's a real advantage to that, particularly for the complex stuff. It doesn't have to be done by everybody. If you want to do complex stuff, yes. Excellent. That's, uh, that's good advice. And, and I, I've, uh, I hearken back to the surgeon who started robotics and, uh, re discovered after 50 cases that, you know, it is 3D for the surgeon, but uh, for the table side assistant, uh, the, the surgeon at the table, there needs to be very, very good uh, efficacy and experience with 2D uh, surgery. And, and that's still, unfortunately, the case at this point. Right, but it's, it's fun. You watch pass pointing, you know, going in to hook something or grab something. You know, you pass point when you land in there. You build memory, memory muscle memory during a case but it's all off and you just say, ah, you got the good screen. I got the crap 2D screen, you know? <laughs> right, right. Death That's perception great. is off. That's great. Okay, so moving right along, uh, our next speaker is Dr. Vinay Badwar uh, from um, uh, West Virginia University. And uh, Vinay uh, started his robotic uh, experience in Pittsburgh, actually. And uh, Vinay, if you could kind of go through the, the elements of starting and then moving to a, a completely new institution, and I know you took some of the folks with you, but uh, Vinay has had uh, an extensive experience in doing robotic procedures on, on uh, cases that many won't. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's something that I, I uh, have uh, followed uh, with, with uh, great interest and, and admiration because I kind of feel the same way. I think the robot allows you to do procedures on a little bit of a higher risk patient, patients that won't uh, do well with a sternotomy. So Vinay, please. Well, thanks, Sam. Thanks, uh, Sloan and STS for uh, this you know, excellent discussion. I want to just hinge on what uh, both Fran and, and Jean said earlier, that obviously the most important aspect of this is your own perseverance and, and, um, and ability to do cases 
not robotically. So through a minimal access incision and then dock the robot. And then obviously work on the team, but also the importance I think uh, Gina mentioned about institutional support. So those are the sort of top three things that we can break apart here in the next couple of minutes. First, uh, just a historical thing, actually, I started doing the robot in Florida before I actually went to, to Pittsburgh, um, approximately about 2000, actually, originally 2005 with the previous version, and then uh, did IMA takedowns and that type of thing. Uh, and then, you know, just the telemanipulation aspects of that, I wasn't really a major believer, so I just, it, it was parked. And and then did minimal access mitral um, operations for almost eight, nine, 10 years uh, in the uh, early 2000s, throughout 2000. Um, and then in Florida, started back with the SI uh, on the mitral platform and then went to Pittsburgh. When I went to Pittsburgh, um, they said, well, here's your robot. I said, I don't want the robot. We have to build a team. And so that was problematic in that um, uh, we basically stopped, went through the program, did a, about 170 mini mitral operations, got perfusion, all the other steps, anesthesia, team building, comfort. And when, the, when I started seeing, we started seeing students come into the room for the mini mitral program, we knew that it was time to dock the robot. So we did a lot of team exercises, uh, cadaver labs, uh, saw other, took the team around to see other programs, went to Mayo, went to Randy Chitwood. Randy Chitwood was our, our team building um, uh, visit. And then came back and started the program. And then uh, we did choose, as Gene has, uh, do a two-surgeon platform. Larry Way has been my brother in arms for now almost 10 years. Um, but also other partners, Chris Cook and other team members have also participated. Our PAs are excellent. It's the, it's the repetitive nature that allows you to incrementally grow and then incrementally innovate, whether that be adding a concomitant procedure, such as maze procedures, tricuspids, um, and other valvular procedures uh, as we evolve. Um, that all comes with time and experience. But the lessons already mentioned by Jean and Fran are very important. Um, I cannot tell you the importance of institutional support. Um, particularly for the two-surgeon platform, for the team, for um, allowing OR time, robotic access. These are some of the fundamental uh, challenges our surgical colleagues around the country likely face, is that uh, to have access to the robot, to have the ability to uh, cohort cases, to have anesthesia support that's dedicated. It's really, the, it's, it's everything about the case but the robot that actually builds the success. The robot's the last piece. And, and once you've docked it, you've developed it, and you've developed all of the other elements, then you're on the pathway to success. And so starting with incremental cases, as uh, both Fran and Jean have said, but then building upon that with consistency and having the volume to do that is important. Um, and so that was done in my previous institution and then now here at uh, WVU, which um, our team, I, I didn't bring them with me, they came, they applied the moment I came, which was just uh, so humbling. Uh, but we've just got such a spectacular team and 
And as Gene does, we, we're committed to education and hosting surgeons from around the country and globe, as you all are, um, to help on that platform. The last point I'll make is that as you begin your program um, and you start with any case, whether that be a, um, a robotic mid-cab or a robotic mitral, uh, start by compartmentalizing the operation and time yourself, dock, docking, pericardiotomy, uh, the mammary steps, do half a mammary. But if you're taking a long period of time with any of these steps, go back and review these steps. Um, I've been blessed to have a, a, a partner in crime here, Peter Carnegie, who has helped uh, many of you. Um, and uh, it helped that team education by going to the team and helping them with each of these steps as well. So these are, these are some of the elements that I think are important um, uh, to help this go along. Wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Vinay. Those are really great comments. Um, I, I have a question for you. Why should people invest the time to learn robotics? You know, cardiac surgery is kind of in a strange spot now with the advent of TAVR um, and TMVR. Where does robotics fit in? Why should we do it? Um, I know that you have had great success getting into robotic aortic valve replacements recently, which is you know, incredibly interesting. Uh, where, where does this fit into our specialty, where our specialty is going, and why is it worth folks' time to invest to learn how to do it? Sure. Well, uh, I think, first of all, broad statement uh, is that, you know, it's, it's a consumer-driven issue. We've heard that statement before. Patients are looking for that. But it's more than that, is that once you've crested the learning curve, I think the robot actually... Um, expands your ability to do complex cases. In fact, in the early phase, and as, as one learns robotic surgery, of course, pick your cases, do the straightforward cases, the best physiology, the non-complicated patients, the non-aged patients, um, and that's all correct. Um, and then stay play by the book. But once you've crested the learning curve, I personally believe, our team believes, that by applying it to the even the high-risk patients, those that actually are frail, those that can't tolerate a sternotomy, it further augments that ability to achieve quality outcomes. And so I believe personally that having an experienced team approach patients allows you to take on even the broadest range of risk and get excellent outcomes because of the access and because of the approach, as long as you can perfuse appropriately. So that's, that's the big why. Um, now, when it pertains to the specific questions about TMVR and, and, um, and uh, TAVR, so from a mitral perspective, having a comprehensive mitral program, uh, and after, if you're a mitral focus, um, then uh, being able to do all of these different procedures, CLIP, TMVR, the, the sort of modern-day mitral specialist, robotic is key. Uh, it's all minimal access. It's, it's being able to offer the most advanced approach and do it well and get great outcomes. As it pertains to TAVR, um, you'll, we'll be publishing this here shortly, but um, it's interesting. We, we started uh, probably about five years ago with cadaver experience. I know Sam Balke started this as well um, and others uh, during the, the sort of rat approach right into your thoracotomy approach and, and, and trying to do it that way. Uh, we found that, that that just wasn't a 
the best option for access to the annulus. And so we went to the exact mitral platform and we just migrated about a centimeter to two centimeter anteriorly and the same in the fourth inner space. We had some alternate instrumentation to do so. And it's, we started that this year, frankly, and it's, it's now become completely routine. Um, and to the point where, as you mentioned in the TAVR issue, for low risk, as you've all been paying attention to the literature, for low risk, there is still some equipoise and what's the most, the best thing. Um, and with, without prompting, our multidisciplinary team, when seeing our approach to robotic AVR, the default in our heart team for low risk patients that get referred for TAVR is now robotic AVR. That's wonderful. That's incredibly impressive. Um, and I thank you for sharing those ideas and experiences. As you know, I, I've learned from you about the aortic, approach to the aortic valve, and I agree with you. Next, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, Arnold Gerson, uh, the Chief of Cardiac Surgery at Yale, who is a, an experienced uh, mitral valve surgeon, uh, but a relatively late adopter of uh, robotics. I know that he's visited uh, Vinay, he's, he visited my program, and I'm sure others, and has done a really good job of rolling this out. So we've, uh, we've taken someone who was not a big believer in robotics, I don't think, initially, and is now a, uh, a total zealot. So I thought it would be helpful to the audience to hear from someone who's recently been successful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me to this uh, session uh, and kind of share my experience. Uh, I can tell the way that I got into robotic initially I actually started doing robotic mid-cap about nine years ago after I did some regular mid-caps. Although that kind of my practice was a reasonably, I would say, medium volume. And, you know, but kept me kind of, a, uh, kind of knowledgeable to the use of the robot. Eventually I became a reasonably busy mitral valve surgeon and about three years, and, and with a time about three years ago when I was doing about, you know, somewhere between 80 and 100 mitral valve operations a year, about a half of that through a right thoracotomy, I felt that I, uh, I kind of had, you know, if to take a next step would to actually use a robot. We had thought about that quite some time, but I didn't feel early on after I finished my training, I didn't feel I had the experience to actually do a good mitral operation. Uh, and, uh, but once I felt I had the experience and uh, to really effectively repair the valve, and I had the volume in order to train effectively and do it repetitively, we decided to go ahead. So we assembled a team similar to what has been described, a team of, uh, uh, I, I, I selected to have a, 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 a surgical PA, and a, you know, actually Michael Lalonde, the chief surgical PA at Yale, kind of really helped me organize this and make this happen. Uh, and uh, we kind of went around, uh, this is about a year, and uh, two and a half years ago, we kind of traveled around, visited Sloan, we visited uh, uh, Eugene Grossi and Didier Lumet at NYU, we uh, went to Cleveland, and kind of a figure at that time, this was probably something we could do. Um, and then we kind of assembled a team, got a commitment for the hospital, for the time, the training, there's certain cost associated with training, and we contacted Pete Carnegie and 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 and, uh, and uh, assembled a team, and actually ended up really the final kind of a team effort was we took a, our team up to West Virginia University for about two day session with Vinay, 
and his team and did a cadaver lab, uh, followed by observers and cases, and kind of got everybody kind of riled up within the team, did a couple of dry runs, uh, and then uh, about two weeks after that, did the first case. Uh, so that's about a year and a half ago when we built up, I think, a fairly uh, reasonable practice, done about 90 cases. Uh, the COVID threw a bit of a wrench into this whole thing. Uh, it was about a three months hiatus, but we kind of restarted again recently and, and it seems to be back on track. The, I, you know, what kind of surprised me with this is, you know, first of all, I do believe it's true with slow thing. I mean, I'm a big believer in my robotic mitral valve surgery. Now, I think actually you can repair the valve better than a right thoracotomy. Uh, I'm sure some people disagree with that. And, and I actually do believe in many instances you can do it better even than sternotomy. So just a little, I'm just talking about the repair part. Uh, the, uh, and, you know, it's a, it is a good, uh, I think, from a patient standpoint, I think it's going to be a very good operation. It's a high uh, patient satisfaction. Our outcomes have been excellent. 100% uh, repair rates, no major complications. Uh, we've done also mitral valve repair and planned mitral valve replacements. Uh, and, you know, I think for the people who are considering this, I think the key is to, I, you do have to have a certain experience, I think, with the robot, some basic experience to know how to use, utilize the robot and do it in a stepwise fashion. Obviously, you have to know how to repair the valve before you proceed into this uh, realm because the last thing you want to do is not going to be able to repair the valve this way. And, and then you have to have commitment to the hospital, have a good team like has been alluded before. And, and yeah, I, you know, as I would encourage, I mean, another thing I think it did do to everybody in the team, including myself, is to really invigorate and get everybody enthusiastic and, and really develop in this program. Thanks. That's great, Arnor. Thank you very much. Uh, great uh, description of how you got into it. Um, I'll uh, pose the, the first uh, of several questions that we have uh, to you, uh, given that you're at an academic institution with uh, residents and fellows in training. Uh, the question says, with the advancement of robotic surgery and the emerging benefits, should it be incorporated in surgical training much earlier? Yeah, I mean, I do believe, uh, you know, definitely, yes. The answer is yes. I think, first of all, the residents need to be trained on the basic use of the robot. I think in cardiac, uh, in cardiac thoracic surgery training, certainly uh, there are certain steps of the operation I think you can easily teach the residents. And, uh, you, know, you know, doing some of the retraction stitches, open up the pericardium. And, and, and I think it is actually the way to set up. It is safe to uh, allow the residents to do the operations as long as they know got the basic skills. It's easy to take over the operation. I think it's much better visualization to do it robotically than to a right thoracotomy, or let alone sometimes to a stenotomy. So in many ways, I think it's more beneficial. For teaching the residents to explain what you want to do, what's your surgical planning, how do you want to, how are you approaching the specific problem, I think it's come second to none, Bates. I mean, I mean it's really fantastic teaching tool. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think if we broaden our imagination a little bit and just look at other specialties, you know, urology residents now uh, don't finish their training unless they are proficient at robotics and uh, general surgery residents are always uh, in the robotic room on the second console. And, and I think our uh, thoracic fellows are now starting to do a lot of robotics in thoracic surgery. So there's no reason why we can't incorporate the, the fellows in training uh, in cardiac. Um, 
That's great. Uh, I will move on to our last panelist, and then we can uh, revisit some of these questions that we had um, and, and uh, discuss some more things. Our last panelist is uh, Rob Smith, uh, who looks at this from a different angle, uh, from the academic angle in private practice. I started doing robotics in private practice, um, and Rob has uh, uh, developed an excellent program in Plano at the Heart Hospital uh, doing uh, all manner of uh, robotic cardiac surgery. So, uh, Rob? Uh, thanks for having me, and I uh, really appreciate you guys putting together this session. <clears throat> um, so my uh, journey uh, has been similar to everybody else's in that uh, we started out with a, uh, a very solid background in doing minimal invasive uh, mitral and tricuspid surgery. Um, <clears throat> in fact, one of my partners, Will Ryan, uh, had been very much early on in the uh, minimal invasive platform for mitral valve surgery and served as my mentor. Um, and so since we felt we had that nicely down, uh, when the Cleveland Clinic paper came out in 2009 about doing good, safe, minimal invasive uh, robotic mitral valve surgery, we felt this is something that our practice really needed to develop if we were gonna call ourselves kind of the top edge uh, of minimally invasive surgery for the mitral valve. So uh, <clears throat> we set about making this happen. So number one, did we have uh, support? So yes, I not only had administrative support, but I also had uh, my partner support, which I think is a really key thing to this. You need to have not only buy-in from the administration, but your partners really need to boost you up and support you uh, <clears throat> to help get cases uh, to you, to make sure that uh, they're available to you know, supports as a uh, uh, backup of the way uh, Gene and uh, DA work together. Uh, that was great when starting, but also uh, to help get the pieces of the puzzle together, particularly if you're a younger surgeon when you're starting out, uh, you don't have the cachet with administration as well as with the, all the uh, uh, referring physicians. So being able to get your uh, more senior partners to, to really back you up is a, it was key for me. The next thing that happened is, uh, again, we assembled the team like everybody else, uh, fortunately, we had mud, many of those pieces already put together in that we had a, a successful minimal invasive uh, mitral uh, team. And so we then transitioned those by going around to see everybody similar uh, that everyone else had done. First, I went to go see Mike Smith uh, up in Cincinnati. And the great thing about him is he, like uh, Sam and I, were just a, a guy doing uh, good old private practice heart surgery and, <clears throat> and was very good with the robot. And so I could directly implement the way that he did things into my practice. And then uh, as I worked with him, I also saw um, and discussed with the, uh, the folks at Da Vinci, uh, how that they, you know, who else was doing robotic surgery and then went down and saw Doug Murphy and Randy Chitwood, uh, also very two high, high end and uh, top performing robotic surgeons. And Doug really had the practice that I really wanted to emulate, which was a majority robotic practice. And so I think that goes along with what everybody else is saying and, and particularly what Vinay was talking about earlier, which is, you know, this kind of leads to a subspecialization where you're not just a, <clears throat> a surgeon who can also add this to them, but really you take on all aspects of the mitral valve and you're committed to uh, mitral valve surgery, uh, mitral valve intervention. And so for me, this led not only to developing the robotic mitral valve practice, but also getting into the transcatheter mitral work. Uh, so my practice as a result of getting into the robotic work is, is really expanded into a larger foray of mitral valve intervention. But once we started that, I think, and you guys had touched on it also with Pete Carnegie, I didn't have Pete, but I know he's been instrumental in setting up a lot of practices. And I want to say what we did 
with the help of several partners is really break down the procedure into the most simplest uh, pieces. Um, and that was in time to everything. And what we wanted to do is we timed our port access cases and then timed our robotic cases, making sure that we were making incremental improvements on our times and having cut times. So at the very beginning, when you're starting out and you're, you know, everything is new, you need to have a, a time frame of which the operation can happen in. And if you're not achieving that, the nice thing about having a minimally invasive practice as a background is you're not having to convert to astronomy, but you can convert to something you know that is still minimally invasive. And I think the other thing, even being a mitral person, is, is really having some access to coronary surgery because that's a great way to start learning. So my first 10 cases were actually all just uh, robotic IMA takedowns and then a sternotomy cabbage, uh, followed by then uh, another 10 cases of IMA takedown and uh, a, porta a, um, a mid cab uh, for the anastomosis. <clears throat> and so for my first 20 cases were all just robotic coronaries. And it was then that I started doing the uh, robotic mitrals to follow that. And I made sure that I had a proctor available. And so, uh, and I think that's something that's become more difficult to do, but having a proctor who's sitting at your right side and kind of making, you know, giving you the confidence to continue to move on when all you want to do is get back to the bedside uh, is really instrumental uh, in kind of building up that confidence that you need to get to the next step and then the next step. Uh, because while this is all incremental, there are so many times just you yourself want to hold yourself back. And as you heard many of these guys before, they all started the robot and then they stopped for a while. Now, part of that has been major technologic advances has made this uh, much more approachable. But at the same time, if you don't, having now a cadre of people who are out there who are robotically trained and have a fair amount of success behind them and a lot of confidence, if you get one of those people by you helping to train you through or at least talk you through this, it really builds up your confidence, allowing you to make it to that next step. And having that for me was, was really key. So those were kind of the, the basic first steps for us. I think one of the things now is our practice is uh, transitioned into a, a, an academic practice to a, an extent in that we do train residents. Um, and in our CT fellowship, our residents have been involved in doing uh, robotic thoracic cases. Um, and then also uh, we do treat, train them uh, to a degree on the robot. I've been working with them on setting up cases, as was mentioned earlier from Arnor. Uh, and then um, and then having them put in some uh, angular sutures and then even some uh, uh, some vortex uh, cords. So we're really trying to advance these guys and get them at least started on. They're not coming out specialized in robotics, but at least started down that pathway. If that's something that they wish to choose to follow, that they should. Rob, that's excellent. And um, you know, as you know, I visited your shop uh, with my team from Jefferson recently. And uh, we really enjoyed our trip uh, with you. One of the things that struck me about your, uh, your program was just how, um, how quick the operation was. Uh, if I remember correctly, you were done with a first start case by about 1030 in the morning. And the reason I mention this is, is not just to brag on you, but um, to say that one of the big criticisms of robotics has been that it takes so long, I, you know, I don't have the time, etc. How were you able to get it to be that efficient? Well, I, I've been lucky in that I've got a, a great team like all of you all do. Um, and because our practice really fundamentally is a private practice setup, we had to learn a number of efficiencies to make sure that this worked. And it, it really started with 
the very beginning, which was we timed everything and compared it to what our times were doing port access or sternotomy surgery. So the goal was uh, with this operation is one, we, we were not going to sacrifice quality, meaning, you know, the human outcome is the number one outcome and we were going to have good quality outcomes. And then number two, we were going to sacrifice upfront efficiency, but we we're going to work to narrow that gap to where we were going to either equal it or surpass our, our uh, previous operation times. And so I'd say right now we are equal to or better than what previously we had done with port access surgery. Having the same team uh, is one of the ways we started with that, but actually our team has grown uh, since that same team approach. And, and so we actually have now three uh, bedside assistants who are all trained to do everything from simple to complex cases. And what's really nice about that is I can do a case every day of the week because I have a team who can do it every day of the week because we've gone on to make sure that the, that training happens. So what you saw Sloan can happen on a Monday, a Tuesday, Wednesday through Friday, because we took the time to then expand uh, the team players who can be involved in that. And so efficiency for us is a big piece to make this happen. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, so now we're gonna move into sort of a group uh, Q&A session where Sam and I are gonna lob some questions to, um, to the panelists and see what uh, folks have to say. Um, I'll, I'll lead off. Um, the first question I would like to ask each of the uh, panelists is what has been the number one obstacle to achieving success that you've seen either in your own practice or helping others start a robotic practice? The number one obstacle and a quick suggestion how to, you know, to get beyond that obstacle. Why don't we start with you, Fran? Robot time. That, that's the biggest obstacle. That and how to fix it? You just need to sell the program. You need to believe in it. And, you know, maybe the, the way to get around it is to have one of you guys come and give a talk there and say how it's changed the practice, how cardiologists love it, patients love it, everybody loves it. Wonderful. That's a good answer. Uh, I like to tell folks uh, to start a program, you really need to have two first starts a week. And you need to negotiate that up front because, of course, the urologists and other specialties will be uh, demanding the use of those robots. Um, a lot of programs have failed because they didn't have access to the robot. Vinay, number one obstacle and how to surmount it. Well, I have two institutions from which to give that answer. Um, in a previous institution, it was exactly as Fran said, it was robot time. Um, uh, the, the second, uh, and now I'm, I'm blessed by my current institution, because we built it from the ground up to not have that obstacle. And we've got a very supportive institution that allows for a little bit more robotic time freedom. But it's the team building and, um, and particularly uh, all the elements and training individuals to make it reproducible exactly as Rob very nicely illustrated. So that um, it's not just one limited team, but you can do it every day. And so that's anesthesia training and cooperation. Um, that was a challenge in a previous institution. It's not so much here because now it's a routine case every day. Um, but that as a program starts, I would say robot time and then team training so that it's not dedicated to only a handful. Expanding the circle is the, that, that would, that's the way I would probably isolate that answer. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Gene, number one obstacle on how you overcame it. 
I've been very blessed because I've had a lot of resources, but I'll go back to my Harport Brockering days. Uh, the failures that I saw there and I saw with a lot of people trying the robotics is lack, lack of institutional support as manifest by not having a dedicated team. It just, and it gets to the point where there's saboteurs on the team because people aren't there, they're not part of the team. And if those resources aren't there, that's the greatest thing that I've witnessed in many programs, attempting and failing for that reason. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think a dedicated team is absolutely essential. And you know, we've had some questions come in from the audience about how to get institutional support. Um, you know, one way to do it is to have um, someone who's experienced and knowledgeable about how to start these programs you know, come give a talk, a, sort of a grand rounds, but not just to the doctors, but maybe have some administrators there, you know, the various team members, perfusion, anesthesia, et cetera, um, to sort of lay out these, uh, these rules of success, if you will, uh, because it is a paradigm shift. Uh, Rob, what's your biggest obstacle been and how did you overcome it? Well, in, in the beginning, I think one of the biggest obstacles was, as I was talking about earlier, was the confidence to take that next step rather than wanting to rush to the table and because really you want the best outcome possible for your patient. And really the way I kind of got through some of this, because you can't have a proctor for every case, obviously, is one of my partners, Kim Jett, uh, who is, uh, does a lot of thoracic robotics, um, he and I would help each other out in, in the way that we would be there and help remind each other you know, to keep moving your hands back to a neutral position, um, help keep moving the case along. Basically, like Gene was talking earlier, having someone who would help kind of mind the room so you could pay attention and, and be in the moment in the, uh, in the console. So I think that's a, a really big piece to uh, having not just support from your partners in kind of the way that they would help bring up your, uh, your case volume, but also having the support from your partners that they can be there during the beginning to help make sure you're focusing on what you need to do to get better on the robot. Um, and, and so you can avoid a bad outcome. A bad outcome will ruin your program. Yeah, that's a great point. I think there's no question you have to have um, support from your partners. Um, Arner, any, uh, any, anything to share with your recent experience in terms of obstacles and how to overcome them? Well, I think we've had a pretty successful run, no major obstacle, but I can tell, I think I, t I totally agree with the previous speakers that you, because I had contemplating starting a robotic program about five or six years ago, and it was pretty clear at that time there was no institutional support, uh, access to block times or access to the robot. And, and the other thing that maybe to add, and I think it is important, and I've noticed that with people that I have discussed that have not able to build a successful program is you got to have a certain volume in order to do this repetitively to when you start because the first few cases it's like redoing the whole case every you know you, you, you feel like you're starting the first case again and again and again so you can't like let several weeks pass in between you have to do them fairly frequently to begin with until you get the routine down so i think you have to have certain basic practice available to select that to have some selection of patients that will come and you can, you can do the operations on. That's great. Um, I have a question for the panelists, and this ties into a couple of the uh, questions that came in from the audience. Uh, this is a, a question that we haven't really been able to answer in, in, in the robotic cardiac specialty, and that is, uh, when is, the, when is it the best time for a fully trained heart surgeon 
uh, to start learning to do robotic surgery? Is it immediately after they finish their fellowship? Is it five years? Is it 10 years into practice? And then as a corollary to that, what do you think the learning curve uh, should be and how many cases uh, does one need to get under their belt um, with a proctor or, or with, with help uh, in order to be, to be uh, independent on this? And uh, we can start uh, in the same order with Fran, if you want to talk to us and maybe focus a little bit on the coronary side, because we haven't really had a whole lot um, of conversation about robotic coronary surgery. I think, uh, I think about the, it's robot time and having the cases. That's number one. And then number two, you need to have at least five years out. When I was, when I was a resident, somebody said, you need to be out 10 years to be seasoned. And of course, I said, no way. But it's very true. But I, I think that five years, I think you can start. But you need to have lots of cases. And you need to be out for five years before you really start doing, stepping out to do things differently. Because you, you just don't have the credibility to step out before that. Um, because if anything goes wrong, it's always because of the robot. Even now, when I have a problem with the robot, the whole hospital knows there's, oh, I had a problem with the robot. So you, you have to have that credibility to, to be out there and try it. But you still should try because it is the future. And, you know, everything is less invasive. Yeah. And, and this issue of um, training for robotic cardiac surgery uh, always comes up in that you know, people who've done full year and, and more than a year fellowships uh, after training in robotic heart surgery are not doing the procedure. And I think that speaks to your point very nicely. Uh, Jean? Well, I, I think that is true. What Fran said about the paradigm for people who are out and haven't had the training, but I think the paradigm is much different now for people in training. I mean, you, got, you can't kid yourself. The R3s in general surgery who do their thoracic rotation, they're the ones who are doing the lobes. They have the computer skills. It's just teaching them the anatomy. So those skills with the robot are there. They, they get them there. And so they're coming out. And we produce people now who will go out, you know, in their thoracic practice day one doing robotic lobes. No if or doubts about it. It's a little bit different with the mitrals. I want to take a step back and say something from a teaching perspective. And my job in life is to teach kids how to repair the mitral valve. And there's no way better of teaching somebody how to repair the mitral valve than having them hang out. All they have to do is hang out in the robot mitral room to see the echo, to see the valve, to see the testing, to see the repair, to see the good, the bad, the ugly, what works and doesn't work is just locked in there. And I teach them, you know, when I do mitral coronaries at the VA, teach them, but that's a different experience in terms of what they get from it, in terms of being, being able to synthesize the anatomy and the physiology and do it. I think with the mitrals, uh, mitrals are a much more curated operation and the lines of where mitrals flow are very well delineated. So I think you have to have, as everybody said, you have to have the volume. So our, our philosophy is that we can produce people who are ready to do it, but they're going to have to go into a practice where there is a flow of mitrals where they'll work with a team and bring this robotic skill to that team. I think that's, that's an interesting perspective because basically what you're saying is that we have entered a, uh, a more mature 
level of robotic heart surgery in the current decade that whatever was happening before may not be reflective of what we can do today in terms of training our, our junior colleagues and, and, uh, and fellows out of, uh, out of uh, fellowship. Um, and, and I totally agree with you. I think that once the robot hits the mitral procedure, the educational value for the folks that are not doing the operation skyrockets. Everybody knows, you know, what SAM is now. Everybody knows what, uh, you know, how to put cords in and, and everybody knows what it should look like when it's, when it's oh my, perfect. Oh my God, I, I, I leave a loose knot with a knot pusher. Oh, there's an air knot. You left a little loose knot there. You know, it's like everybody <laughs> loves to be a critic. <laughs> right, exactly. Vinay, what are your what are your thoughts on on training and and when the appropriate time uh, should be? So, I mean, first of all, um, I, I'll sort of augment what others have said, maybe take a slightly different turn. So, first of all, I think out of fellowship, um, there is opportunities to do a, a full year with uh, one of the many people on this panel. Um, and actually have dedicated expertise and actually learn and do a proper robotics fellowship. Um, so that's a definite pathway coming out of a residency. It's difficult to learn robotic intracardiac surgery and mid-cab surgery during residency. Um, uh, but of course, in thoracic, that's a different story since that's such a standard pathway. Uh, so I think you need extra training for that. So there is pathways and go seek a fellowship or go do training. And to take uh, Fran, as Fran's point earlier, is that you know, in this era of uh, quality and safety, you really have to have some volume and expertise. Now, how do you get to that point? Start doing mid-cabs, start doing minimally invasive mitrals, get known to have high quality, a high quality product on either be mid-cab or uh, minimally invasive mitrals, direct vision, videoscopic, whatever. There's a very definitive learning curve. There's a manuscript that's uh, uh, published in the AATS and STS uh, through a joint task force on this definitive pathway of 25 cases, repetitive exposure, up the direct vision pathway. So there's a definite clear pathway. Um, courses such as this and what STS puts on in the robotics course, learn, get exposed, but start with a direct vision pathway so that you build up that reputation and your own personal uh, fortitude to be able to handle perfusion, um, myocardial protection, clamping the aorta, all of those incremental steps. The robot's the last piece. Uh, and then get training to do so like has been shared. So you do have to build up that personal experience and that's how I think how you should do that. Um, you can't just say, um, have the volume start the robot program. Um, but once you have that volume of minimal access, that's actually how you can get institutional support uh, because you have that ability and then the robot helps you further take that next uh, so-called quantum leap. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, we just want to wrap up the uh, webinar with some practical um, concepts and information here. The first is that the Society for Thoracic Surgeons um, um, Task Force on Robotic Cardiac Surgery is putting together a complete um, uh, webinar, basically, or, or online course for robotic cardiac surgery. This will be extensive uh, from soup to nuts. Um, probably would take you a day or two to go through. And uh, we anticipate this to come out within the next several months, and so uh, more to follow. 
the reason we're doing it online this year is because we were going to have a live course in Atlanta, Georgia, but it was canceled due to COVID-19. However, uh, I am pleased to announce that we have secured a date, April 15th and 16th of 2021, where we will be doing a live course. And that will include a cadaver, uh, hands-on training, uh, and you're encouraged to bring your first assistance uh, to that course. Additionally, the Thoracic Surgery Foundation, uh, under the leadership of Joe Bavaria, uh, has uh, supported with Intuitive Surgical an actual advanced cardiac fellowship for practicing surgeons. We've learned the hard way that it's hard for a young graduate to start out doing these cases, and it's a little easier for more experienced surgeons to learn. There's not a great model for that. We've worked those kinks out for you where basically you bring your team for some case observations, you put them through the training course at Intuitive, uh, you get some proctoring uh, from a member of our group and, and we'll help you get started. Uh, our goal as a task force is really to increase um, the quality, safety, and quantity of robotic surgery, you know, for the benefit of our patients. So with that, um, we'll wrap it up. I'm going to uh, turn over for final comments to Sam Balke, my uh, co-moderator. Uh, thank you very much, Sloan. Uh, this has been an excellent session with, uh, with a lot of good perspective uh, from experienced robotic uh, heart surgeons. And the goal uh, is uh, basically to increase interest uh, in robotic cardiac surgery and, and to allow folks to realize that uh, this is not uh, hard to attain. There's a, there's a learning curve to be sure, but then there's a learning curve in cardiac surgery. I'm always amazed at how easily we uh, think that we can uh, turn a general surgeon into a cardiac surgeon, and that's done every day, but we can't turn a fully-fledged cardiac surgeon into somebody who uses, uh, you know, uh, advanced technology like robotics to do the procedure and uh, uh, perfect it and, and, and actually have better outcomes. So uh, thanks to all of our panelists. Thanks to the STS. Thanks to our sponsor uh, for this uh, summer series, Medtronic. And uh, we hope to see you at a uh, webinar uh, in the near future. Thank you so much and good night. Thank you, Dr. Guy, Dr. Balke, and thank you to all of our panelists today for your participation and insight. A reminder that the archived version of this webinar will be available tomorrow at sts.org, as well as on the STS YouTube channel and on the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. The STS online course in robotic cardiac surgery will feature expert presentations, surgical videos, and live panel discussions. This course will be available later this summer on the STS website. We hope you'll join us on Thursday, July 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern time for the next webinar in our summer series. Thank you all again, and we hope to see you back here next time.